0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Hello there. Welcome to this episode number 414 of the Material Podcast. I am your host, Andy Anatko. My friend and co-host, Florence Ion, is still on her temporary leave. I'm, I'm wondering if she isn't, like, at this moment, waist-deep in solving a murder. Okay, stick with me here. Like, this this isn't that – I want to emphasize this is not the reason why she decided to take a leave. Uh, it's just now occurred to me that – this sort of thing was a common dodge for mystery series on TV. Like Murder She Wrote. Like the show's creators, they were so jazzed about getting their updated twist on Miss Marple sold to a network and on the air that they f- totally forgot about how they'd completely shot themselves in the foot eventually, like we all are going to have to wonder why so many people are getting murdered in this quaint coastal New England village. If you're going to have her solving a murder each and every week, and this isn't post Sopranos era TV. So they couldn't just do the obvious pivot and make Jessica Fletcher into a serial killer. So they would keep sending her off to other cities for things like vacations, meetings with her publisher, author appearances, book signings, that kind of thing. And so that way, the murders can travel with us. So they can spread the murders around. So, and for no reason other than my brain is like a football that bounces in any direction, except for the one in which I throw it. It occurred to me that if Flo were such character, she'd be taking a month off to go to some sort of a spa to heal and recover. And then as soon as we've established a colorful group of characters at that spa, boom, somebody dies and flows the sole non-suspect in the entire group. And she's like way too smart. And her training as a journey, as a journalist, it's such a, an ingrained reflex that she can't help but be suspicious of like the speed with which the chief of police decided to pin everything on the spas, newly hired dishwasher. The, the guy who recently served time in prison on a totally nonviolent charge. And probably like he's he's a songwriter singer songwriter he got busted for like you know having two ounces of dope or whatever avuncular he's he's got a girlfriend he's got a kid on the way all the sort of stuff that sort of basically telegraph in the first 10 minutes he could not possibly have done it so i wouldn't put a pastor to, to solve those kind of crimes too she's very 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 smart but she'll be back soon um I talk a little bit about WWDC, uh, Apple's annual Worldwide Developers Conference. It's happening next week, Monday, June fifth. So, as you can imagine, it's kind of harvest time for uh, us tech pundits like this is the week before so we get one last week to take guesses as to what apple's going to announce then we get to get all worked up about how this thing that we've guessed is going to happen is <laughs> it's, it's it's going to be a disastrous move for a once proud tech giant once again reminding you that this thing that is a huge colossal mistake is something that we've just guessed they're going to they're going to actually do But this is all gravy for us. Like we make our weekly output quota without having to actually research anything or interview anyone, God forbid. And that's going to sound super lazy, I know. But keep in mind that Flo and I, we often spend days and days and days nailing down a source for a fact that we don't wind up even using in anything we actually write because the source that we actually found was able to confirm to us that this fact was actually nonsense. So it was – not a waste of time, but we spent days and days and days on this just so that we now have 300 words we have to cut out of this thing that we're writing. So give us this. Like it's really, really lovely just this once to walk up to the batter's box and get an intentional walk instead of having to face down these ungodly, like breaking pitches or whatever. And then next week, like the thing actually happens. And then we scramble for a week trying to explain what it all means. And this is, of course, when we make up for that lazy week of guessing and making things up and beard stroking. Like, it's very, very easy to just repeat what Apple or Google or Microsoft or whoever have told us, and the rewards for doing so are very, very, very real. They, they go far, far beyond getting one of those really nice, like, water bottles and stuff at the, at the conference or whatever. But unfortunately, that's not how this job actually works. So we have to do that Lieutenant Columbo thing. Like, there's always that one more question, one more thing. And I think, well, it's, it's, it's very puzzling. There was this one thing that I just couldn't figure out. And so I just kept, you just keep hammering and hammering at it until you satisfy yourself that you're not being made a fool of. And it's something you have to be on guard for because tech companies are a lot more aggressive about controlling the narrative than they used to be. So, yeah, they're <laughs> these, these, it's, oh God, it really is. There, there, there is, there is a need for like, a reward at the end of it, and for me, it's going to be pizza on Friday. I'm not. I'm not. I'm no longer doing pizza automatically every Friday. I try to like save it like once or twice a month, ideally for when p pe- when application of pizza seems to be medically indicated. And I think that next weekend, pizza will be medically indicated. I'm having Brussels sprouts Friday night this week. Next week, I think it's going to be the full meat lovers. They've well, probably already heard that as far as. Uh, actual announcements for Apple. They're going to show off their new virtual reality goggles, and I'm sure I'll have lots to say about those on the show next week. And I will even figure out how to make it all relevant for a Google-related podcast, I promise. Uh, But that's next week. This week, I, along with a whole bunch of other folks, got access to Google SGE, a.k.a. uh, Google Search Generative Experience. AKA we refuse to dignify this dodgy and experimental chatbot feature with a chummy sounding name. Also, I've got some stuff to say about foldables, things that both the Google Pixel fold that folds because they have a screen that against the laws of God and nature folds in half, as well as the simpler thing that I kind of wish that people would pay more attention to. But all of this is going to happen right after this break. This episode of Material is brought to you by ExpressVPN. I don't know if you've heard, but streaming services like Netflix often have tens of thousands of shows. But depending on where you are, you only get to see a small selection of what's available. It's almost like paying for gym membership and then only using the treadmill. That's where ExpressVPN comes in. When you use ExpressVPN, you can change your online location, which can change where streaming services think you're located. They have almost 100 different server locations, so you can discover thousands of new shows to watch on Netflix, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and more. This means that I can watch Top Gear on on the UK version of Netflix just by opening the app, selecting a location, tapping one button to connect, and then refreshing the page to get access. There are loads of reasons to choose ExpressVPN over other VPNs. The blazing fast speeds mean you can stream in HD with zero buffering. It's compatible with all your devices, phones, laptops, smart TVs, and more. And ExpressVPN has the added benefit of encrypting your data so you can browse the web securely. So make a smart choice. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com/material Don't forget to go to expressvpn.com/material to get an extra 3 months of ExpressVPN for free. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So yeah, I got access to Google SGE or Search Generative Experience, and I've been using it for the past week. Overall, I'm very happy with it. I'm, it's it's fine. It's gear. It's groovy. It's swell. Did I say it's happening? I feel I feel like I've already said it's happening. And anyway, in any event, I'm I'm very happy with it. These are very early days, of course. So at this stage, I'm just glad that the overall concept of, of SGE seems to be a good one. Like, it doesn't change how I use Google search. It adds to it, you know? So, like, it's it's absolutely obvious that the stuff that you're seeing uh, that SGE generated for you in, in, in that colored, rounded box is generated by AI. And the stuff underneath that box is absolutely the same as normal Google search, for good and for bad. It does really seem like Google managed to avoid stepping on any rakes or third rails with this uh, with this first go of it the central mechanism of Google search is still to interpret your search query and send you to other places on the internet for the facts and the answers where you yourself can get a, get a load of the facts or the information in context. And you yourself can just des- can decide whether the person who wrote that is a wing nut or not. You don't have to wonder if you're reading some sort of a hallucination of someone who's trapped inside a server box. Uh, the generated text in that box reads as something neutral to just to help you see the shape of those search results like it's not like bard it's not like chat gpt where the bot seems to be urging you to trust what it says and there's no flavor there's no twist you know on it it really does try to be as dry and efficient as possible so it's not trying to get you to you know form an emotional or communicative attachment to it that's, that's one of the problems that's kind of subtle with a lot of these chat bots because Our brains are programmed when we're having a – what we think is a conversation with a person or when when we're using a chatbot that gives us every indication of uh, this familiar thing of having a conversation with a person. It triggers parts of our mental software that's geared towards finding and recognizing intelligence and point of view in the person that we're talking to. And when this is a robot without intelligence, without a point of view, it leads to major, major, major mistakes and misunderstandings. Uh, So – yeah, it, it, it works pretty well. Uh, I also don't feel like, uh, SGE stole any clicks away from the content on any other websites when I was doing my searches. The only times that a query of mine began and ended on Google search, it was, I mean, I was, I was looking for a direct answer to a direct question. Like, like are all the members of ZZ top still alive? Rest in peace, dusty hill. And in practice, yeah, it supports everything Google's been claiming. They've been talking about this sort of feature for a couple of years now. And it's always been presented as a solution to the problem of what happens when you're searching for answers when you don't know enough about whatever it is to actually come up with a good question. You don't know what the keywords are. You know, how do you, where where do you go from there? And that's where SGE comes in. It seems, it seems to work. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples actually just from today. So yeah, I spent a lot of time on Reddit. And often the communities I find there, they use terms that are so common inside that community, inside that subreddit, that nobody sees a need to explain them. So, like, I I read a post on the uh, hobby drama subreddit about whether a certain famous ballerina is really, as you might say, all that. Uh, And somebody threw shade at this ballerina by describing her as an A-class dancer, not an S-class dancer. Uh, similarly, I also read a news item about someone who died in a crash of a hand-built experimental airplane before they could be tried for a crime that they'd been accused of. And because I'm someone on the internet, I didn't care so much about the tragic death of a human being who was certainly loved by his family and friends. I kind of glossed over the aspect of the victims of his crime who now will be denied the closure of trial and justice. I just wanted to know more about this hand-built experimental airplane that he died in. Like, was it just a very normal-looking kit plane? Because these things, like, they fly under an experimental designation uh, with the FAA just to get it licensed for flight. Or, like, was this airplane, was it something properly weird? Like, you look at this and you're thinking... That should be drawn in crayon and then put on a fridge to humor a small child with burgeoning talent. That should not be built and then flown. So in both of those cases, a deep dive would actually have been counterproductive. I was in the middle of something. I was, I was reading this, the, the, these news articles. I was reading the subreddit. I didn't want to just be distracted into like a 20-minute 20, 20 rat hole on a whole other subject. I don't want the distraction. I just want to duck out of that article for a minute to get an overview of the subject so that I can duck right back in and then continue reading with a little bit more context in mind. And SGE, it delivered. Uh, the Whitman W-5 Buttercup uh, was designed in 1938, and it looks like a conventional, sensible airplane. At least it looks conventional until the wings fall off, which is uh, tragically what happened. So, okay, not. If it, was, it, was, it was a fine airplane. Uh, and also the difference between A-level and S-level, uh, those are formal skill levels that are defined for competitive ballroom dance. I didn't see any reference to them like in ballet, but – that's what came up with s level is supposedly the level of dancers who are who are competing for like a national medal so i think that the what they're getting at is that uh this ballerina she's a level which means she's really good she's completely competent s level means that you're in the absolute top tier of like people who are at the doing this thing at the best level that a human being could possibly do so they're basically saying I don't know. They're, <laughs> I still don't understand ballet, but it's uh, – I mean, but that one, that one was a particularly good example for this uh, explanation. Like I couldn't get any results from any plain old Google search. Like the top search results, no matter what query I came up with, they were all like dance schools, you know, um, and all these – links, they all answer the question from the sense of like skill levels and dance classes, like hey, when I if I've got so much experience, like what level will I what level class should I take? Which is totally not what I'm what I'm what I'm looking for. Now I have another example, but this maybe shows off a limitation, intentional limitation, I think, of SGE. So this weekend is Pride Weekend. Uh, my town is having its very first Pride Parade on Saturday and it's going to pass right by my building like right underneath my window. So of course there is no way that I'm not plastering the front of my building with pride flags, but that's kind of a moving target. And I don't want to be ignorant. Like the whole point of the pride flag is inclusivity. So I've seen a bunch of different designs for pride flags. and I don't want to exclude people with a non-inclusive flag. So aha, perfect job for this kind of search tool. I need to have a conversation about what I want the flag for And sure, if Google Shopping can send me someplace to get what I want, okay, I won't object. Ah, but any permutation that I put together of the question, what's the difference between the different pride flags, returned just a basic Google search result set. I tried the same queries again, this time substituting American for the word pride, and that's when SGE came out from hiding. Then I went over to Google Bard, and that's where I got the generative AI answer that I expected. So I have to conclude or at least corroborate that SGE has sort of a temperature sensor for controversial search queries. I'm sure it ex- also extends to legal advice, medical advice, uh, uh, things that they've already flagged uh, on BARD as things that they're not, they are not—they have no business uh, giving answers about with generative AI. It's like the, the standards Google search box is the big family Thanksgiving dinner. And there's an unwritten rule that the chatbot doesn't isn't that supposed to discuss politics or religion or LGBTQ plus rights or anything else that might send great aunt fudgy off on another one of her rants. That's It is, it is, it is interesting, interesting to note. I'm finding it hard to map out uh, when I'm going to get the SGE box to appear. When your are uh, when your name comes up, if you, you know, of course you, you put your, uh, your, 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 you've registered at the, at the lab site say, yeah, please give me this stuff as early as possible. You get, of course, as usual. You get an email link. You click on the link, and boom! Uh, you you click a button. And say, hey, do you want uh, every time you go to Google search to get uh, SG to get SGE? And sometimes I, I can't figure out when it kicks in. There are times, like I said, when I'll get nothing, and I'm I think it's because again, it's it's been parsed as a topic that. They don't want uh, this generative AI. They don't want SGE to have anything to do with it. Sometimes it automatically will give you that full box with, uh, again, two or three paragraph overview of the of the question, a couple of different highlighted search links on the right, and some boxes at the bottom for next steps you can, you can partake. And sometimes it actually asks you. You just get a little shadow box saying, hey, do you want uh, SGE to take a crack at this? And I don't know what the... I don't know what the velocity is for each one of those things. It's kind of interesting Uh, when it would say, Hey, I think that I could answer this, but I'm not going to do that until I actually ask for permission first. Maybe this is one of the things that they're wiring up and that they're, they're testing about that. uh, The other stuff that's in that uh, generative search box, besides the, those, the three paragraph description and the, uh, and the stuff you get a carousel of suggested questions and a box where you can enter a follow up so in addition to the suggested links in addition to the so these uh, uh the summary it will also tell you here are some place other places you can other other better questions you, you can ask and you can sort of refine what you go i finding that the i'm finding that the carousel is actually more useful to me than the follow-up box but neither of them is quite as good as i think it ought to be yet I mean, no wonder it's the first generation of this like i want the follow-up conversation to help to foc- me to focus into my line of investigation. Like when I was looking at those different dance levels, I was a little disappointed that it wouldn't help me drill deeper into that specific subject. Like as an agent, SGE seemed to want to help me explore like a cloud of topics around dance. And uh, here are all the directions you could go f- beyond this. Whereas no, I really, really just wanted to get narrower. I wanted. I'm at the top of a funnel. I want to get closer and closer and closer to that the bot the pointy, uh, limited bottom of that funnel. Um, and that might have been that kind of approach. Hey, here's please investigate. Be like a butterfly. That might have been good for other types of queries, but I still don't know why the top level is called S, because like further research has revealed that the letter S is in fact way later in the alphabet than the letter A. So that's a mystery that I'm going to continue to have to ponder. But the carousel did work well. All this again, the suggested follow-up questions. Uh, it did work well when I was asking how to fry mushrooms and not wind up getting them all soggy, uh, either through the ingenuity of SGE or just plain good luck. There was a suggested question that correctly latched on to the, the idea that all I all I want to get out of this query is I just don't want soggy mushrooms. Maybe the fact that I'm uh, frying them is not absolutely necessary to me. So it actually suggested a query about, hey, how about roasting them instead? Good. So all in all, yeah, I'm I'm happy about SGE. I'm I'm glad that I have access to it. I am left wondering how BARD or ChatGPT, for that matter, is going to fit into my workflow because, like, SGE, it's a little bit fussy about generative features, you know, like you can sort of trick it into writing Python code for you, but it's clearly intended like exclusively for search results. And when I don't get what I want from SGE, turning to a chatbot, it still doesn't feel like an instinctive step but maybe that's for the best like bard and chat gpt they should probably still feel like at least a little bit shady you know like that's their state of sophistication for now after all like i it it shouldn't be <laughs> okay <laughs> you know you're leaving the protected zone <laughs> we, we, whatever happens it's, it's it's on your your own recognizance you know so if you if you wind up like thinking that you're going to be getting mushrooms and instead the propane bottle coated with salsa that the chatbot told you to put into the 500 degree oven actually took out your entire kitchen. That's on you. In addition to the salsa and whatever remnants of the kitchen was exploded outward. Uh, and, and also it it's clear that my experience with SGE actually has been exactly what Google intended it to be for all of its limitations. And this Uh, I make the statement based on a page in the Google blog that announced that wider access to SGE. It sells it for three specific things. Uh, Number one, broad answers to complicated topics. Check quick tips and pointers in response to highly specific questions about how to do something. Check. Now the third item on their list is I'm quoting here, discover a range of products and things to consider while shopping. Now that's, telltale that's really significant it's it's another sign of just how critical shopping is to google's business plan this has nothing to do with artificial intelligence but it's, it's really really telling i think google's been pushing google shopping really hard since well before they saw open ai and microsoft as the fist of doom it just goes to show how huge a threat google considers amazon to be like Shopping-related searches, they're a big opportunity for ad revenue. Yes, that but that's just gravy. When people perform searches for products, they don't go to Google. They go straight to Amazon, and that's terrifying to Google. Google search is still the front door to the Internet for most users, but Amazon's front side porch still getting a hell of a lot of traffic. And once someone is inside Amazon to search and explore Different microwave ovens or whatever, like Google can't see what kind of searches the user made. They can't see what kind of path that they took from this idle whim that, oh man, I'm kind of sick and tired of half of the segments on the LED on the, (laughs) on the Amana microwave that I got from my mom. 20 years ago i'm i've I'm, I'm 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 sick and tired of like not being able to only be able to see like the bottom row of segments on what time uh, how how much time i'm putting on this uh uh on this 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 leftover rice uh like they don't know like well where did you start where did you go where did you end that's really really valuable information they can't see google can't see any of it uh, the the most important piece of data is what got you to close the deal what got you to actually Put this thing in your cart and then check out, and that's invisible to Google. They need that. They gotta solve that problem. Hence, they gotta keep pushing and developing Google Shopping. It's it's even more important now that Google's in a shooting war with Microsoft. So, you know, if there's a if there's a press release about how hey look we've added a fourth color to the Google Pixel Buds Pro now not only now with this new coral robonda. Uh, colorway when you use the Google assistant to shop for popcorn kernels. Now, uh, you'll be in a festive mood. Okay. (laughs) Again, I, I understand why you have to do this. I sympathize. I wish I'm glad that I'm not competing with Amazon. I can barely compete with my neighbors who put too much trash in the recycling. I have to be there really, really quickly. And I have enough trouble with that. And Amazon is probably part of that problem too, because of all the cardboard. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Before we take our second break, I do want to talk a bit about the Chrome browser. This is kind of relevant. Like, I know it's not exactly a vibrant topic, but that's my point. I'm feeling really disappointed that Chrome is basically no different from any other browser, and it's not even different from any browser from 2010. Like, everybody's given up. Like, the the browser is just a runtime window for code developed by web servers. Like, We, we, had a flurry of development and inspiration and Hey, let's make things easier for users. How about if we put the address bar as part of the window? Brilliant. Let's do that. Hey, how about if we have tabbed browsing? Oh my God here, take $20 out of petty cash and take a long lunch, uh sidebar. Have a sidebar with like reading lists. Okay. I'm less excited, but Hey, we're, we're still moving. Let's do that. Let's do that. And then nothing. Like did that was, that was the point of perfection. Like I, a good artist knows when to put down their brush because one more, one more stroke, one more improvement to the browser will just ruin everything. It's perfect. It's 2010 Obama's president. Nothing can go wrong from this point onward. Let's all celebrate. And we all, we all know that that's not quite true. I mean, and why, why isn't Google working on this? Like, AI enhanced search, it's nice and the full barred chatbot it's also nice. But is this stuff the transformation of my daily workflow online that I'm really really desperate for? Here the, it's I'm, this is on my mind because besides uh, Google SGE, I also got access to another bit of pre-releaseness next next last week, uh, a radical new web browser. It's called Arc. Arc and it's it's Mac only for now. You can go to arc.net to get on the wait list. That that's your that's your sign that it's free. It's a free browser, but who is funding them? Because if they could get if they could buy arc a three letter donate domain name, even if they had to go for a.net, that's some bucks, man. Uh, but I digress. Uh, like I've been using it for just a week, but oh my god, I love Arc. It's the first new browser that has threatened Chrome on my Mac. Like, okay, Firefox and Brave and DuckDuckGo and Safari. I've got all of them, of course, on my Mac. They all each have their charms. Uh, That plus the Tor browser, I pull them out for different specific tasks that they're specifically good at. Fine. But they're all fundamentally that exact same style of browser with the same monolithic UI elements and the same limitations. Like they're all based on the same concept that you click on a link and it opens in a window or a tab. And it's up to me to keep them all organized. I can save important sites as bookmarks. Great, but they all go into a folder, and some of them go in a bookmark bar. But otherwise, it's totally up to me to keep all of those organized too. That's a lot of. I'm not terribly clever. That's That's a lot of workload. Um, now this is this isn't going. I'm not going to give you a deep dive review of Arc. For that, I'm going to refer you to uh, what my friend Adam Angst wrote about it for tidbits. Uh, go to the show notes for the link. Uh, Relay.fm slash material, and you can read it read it in depth. But Broadly, I think that ARC has this attitude that's obvious but revolutionary. It has this attitude that the web is a workspace or a set of workspaces. And the places you go on the web, they're going to be related to a certain context that's important to you. And finally, I think Arc understands that the mindset that I'm in when I open a bookmark to, say, Spotify is completely different from my mindset when I open a page for one of the <laughs> way too many research papers that I'm studying for something I'm working on or the specs on a new CPU that I need for reference. Okay. That's why Arc has a sidebar just like all the rest, but it's nothing like the sidebars in any other browser. There's this little tidy dock of icons at the top. For, in my case, Spotify, Slack, Twitter, and all the other sites that I treat like desktop apps. So I'm not going to wind up with 10 or 20 open tabs for my webmail client by the end of the week, which is what happens all the time in Chrome. And the sidebar has a list of my, what they call, spaces, each major ongoing project of mine, like stories I'm following for material and the Google Docs that I'm writing to support it for, for Flow and whatever, uh, that's that's one project. The work I'm doing for my next NPR tech news segment is another project. Stuff I'm doing to prepare like my new website, that's another project. Each of these is a different space. And I just click make one click into that item in that sidebar and hello, I can return to a specific paused task. Like this the, the mindset that I was in when I left this to go to another task or go to bed, for God's sake, uh is it's exactly there without any other clutter, without anything else intruding in it. And I didn't really have to do much in order to maintain this. And here's and here's another example of where they're really thinking. while we're on spaces, you can have a different user profile for each individual space if you want to. So, like if I had one Google account for work and another one for like for a nonprofit that I helped to run, I don't help to run a nonprofit. I was, it was, very, when you work for yourself, it's really hard to come up with examples for like different user profiles. Please bear with me. But if that were the case, I could use both of them at the same time without any sort of digital or cognitive cross-contamination. When I, when I'm in my, and when I'm in my, that, that workspace, I've got that one Google account going. When I'm in the nonprofit workspace, I'm logged in under, under the nonprofits, uh, uh, Google account. Really, really simple and obvious and easy. Arc, it immediately impressed me the way that most really great apps or services do. It struck me like it's a web browser designed by people who need a great browser and couldn't find one, and it annoyed them. It's also, by the way, it's also got this brilliant new idea where a link can be opened inside a temporary viewport that floats above your browser, like instead of Arc creating a brand new window or brand new tab for it. Um, they call it, I might, I might, I might have the terminology wrong. I know what it is. They've, they've got words in the documentation. I think they call it a peak P E E K. And it's a perfect solution to the problem of all of those links that you open just temporarily. Like it's not a, it's not a page that you're going to be in for any length of time. Uh, you just want to see someone has given you a link in a, like in a message, or you just want to open up a Wikipedia page or something to look up a piece of information and then get rid of it. And the fact that this floats above the rest of your uh, browser implies and sort of uh, inflicts a sense that, Hey, you're going to, you're going to dump this as soon as you're done reading it. When you switch to something else, this is going away. And if it, if it is actually something that you need to keep a hold of, you can also click a button to turn it into a regular, like open web page or whatever. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's totally up to you. Uh, It also does something where like if it opens uh, every time, every time you open a link that, uh, sorry, every time that Arc opens a link that it received from a different app, like again, let's say that you're in iChat, let's say say you're messaging with people and they send you a link, it opens in one of these peaks and it's gone as soon as you read it, or again, tap a button to open it as a normal page. That seems like a very natural behavior and a way to actively attack the problem of why are there why why is why are there suddenly like 28 uh, uh, browser windows each with at least so many so many tabs in it that i now i can't even ju- i can't even see the mini icons anymore i can only see like a few very very desperate pixels that are just hanging on by their finger by their by their fingernails to be to be actually noticed and seen that's really really a great idea it's just Immediately makes things easier and better for you. Arc, it's super, super seductive. That's what I'm finding. Um, I have it running in a maximized window that occupies an entire secondary display on my Mac. Okay, that's how good it is, that there is a display that is just for... Yikes. Again, the, just the idea of having these shortcuts where, oh, I need to check my mail. Boom. Here's, again, the stuff that I use as apps. Oh, I want to post something on Twitter. I want to check something on Twitter. Boom. I want to change something on Spotify. Boom. Instead of having, again, a dozen different tabs that, that have these that these different little apps are opened in. Just that alone is a really, really big deal. Like the best praise I can give Arc is that I'm actively trying not to switch to it as my default browser. And, oh, boy, I, it's hard because I really want to because I'm way, way more focused, way, way more productive th- through Arc than I am with w- with Chrome. But, like, the problem is that my iPad, my Pixel phone, they're important parts of my workflow, too. And I still get a lot of use out of my Chromebook. So the fact that Arc isn't multi-platform is, for me, a really big liability. Although, you know, that does shed light on a brighter problem, uh uh, that i discussed recently like if i used i uh, yeah see i i'm concerned about lock in on chrome that i'm locked into i feel locked into chrome because it is the it is the central repository for my passwords it is the central repository uh, for my bookmarks across all platforms across everything that i do and yeah see this reminds me that if i used evernote for my bookmarks and i used one password to manage all my passwords instead of chrome this problem about switching to Arc, that would be almost immaterial. So, yeah, it's given me a lot to ponder. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make a big complaint. Uh, and it's applicable to every browser maker, including Chrome, but not limited to Chrome. But this is a Google podca- podcast. So I'm going to aim it at Google. Like, why isn't the Chrome team pulling off anything even remotely as innovative, transformative as as Arc? I mean, Ark, It feels the develop. It feels like the developers of Arc. They're on my side. They want my life to be better. They they see me. I'm here's here's how fond I am of Arc. I'm just thinking about a time when like I bought this really really big like gilt edge mirror uh, at a at a garage sale just down the street. It was only like maybe. 30 or 40 yards down the street. So, okay, no, I know it's big and heavy, but and it's going to take me a while to get, uh, get it like uh, back to my place, but Hey, I'll, I'll make it. And I didn't get like more than like 10 yards down this road. When someone's noticed that I was struggling with this big, heavy, ungainly object and said, Hey, I noticed that you're struggling with that. Would you like me to improve your life right now? and helped me to carry it all the way all the way back to my place. That's what Arc felt that's that's reminded me of what Arc does. Like as soon as I started using it it's like, "Oh my god, you've seen every every moment of pain that I've had in every interaction I've had with Chrome for the past x number of years and you found that intolerable and you wanted to help me. God bless you. God bless all of you. And even if you turn out to be an evil organization, that's going to open up this security wormhole that sucks everything important and valuable out of my head. Fair. I, I I still, I owe you a solid. If that's what you want, take it. I'm sorry. It also includes some really, really bad memories from junior high. So tread carefully. That's all I'm saying. Like arc, it aggressively solves aggressively solves a host of problems that have been very, very well known for a very, very long time to be affecting every almost everybody. Like I keep opening new instances of an important site because it's too important. It's, it's too difficult rather to find any of the dozen instances that I've left open. Once again, I usually have like how many, how many tabs do I have open to, uh, uh, to, to my mail, uh, to my webmail browser, but web mail client way too many. And i'll i'll give Chrome i'll give Chrome credit for at least attempting to organize my projects and my research drives and dives into these things they call they call journeys, uh, and you can look at them by opening up Chrome's own sidebar and pop, click on the pop up and say select hey show me journeys, um, and it's again credit for having making the attempt but at best it really is just an IOU for a much much better solution that never comes. Like as is, I need to set aside like fifteen minutes to a half an hour to examine all of my open tabs and windows and triage them into folders, and you know, because sometimes there's stuff that I want that I, I need to save for later, but I didn't save at the moment, or uh, this this some data I just need to copy out and put into a notebook or something like that. Like, and I have to do this every single time I need to restart my Mac, or like every single time that I'm about to do a live stream or something, and I don't want. Uh, the quality of the video or the audio to get be affected by all the resources that are being tied up by all of these web pages and all of these windows and all these tabs inside chrome like so i can't really rend my garment and ask oh why oh why isn't google interested in innovating chrome i'm sure the i'm sure the chrome team is extremely interested in innovating chrome i i think that they're just not allowed to they're just they will never ever ever get permission through the the bureaucracy and the hierarchy of how slowly google approves new ideas i'm sure that usually uh, this is why i try not to blame like individual engineers at any company for the problems of of a product i see because usually it is a manager that has stopped their innovation stopped their industry to make things better fix problems uh but yeah but we, we know why google as a company is interested in innovating Chrome Chrome is already the world's number one browser. And that's by a factor of three uh, over the runner runner up that's overall. And when you limit it to just desktop browsers, they are number one by a factor of four. Uh, Google's priorities are to make Chrome the most inclusive browser on the planet done and to support Google's ad business. They aren't motivated to innovate or, you know, make our lives better. It's crystal clear to me that while BARD and the new Google search generative experience, they're going to be handy. I'm going to like them. I'm going to get some use out of them. But Arc is the thing that's going to reduce my level of stress. It's going to increase my focus. It's going to help me do my job better. And Google could be doing the same things for me, but they aren't. And I kind of resent that, you know. When a trillion-dollar company controls an app or a service that affects billions of people and their overall attitude towards moving things forward – is just a silent shrug. Yeah, that's, that's no good though. I do. I I got, I I guess I got to be fair and I got to wonder if Google sees themselves, if they see that themselves, if they see their responsibility as just to make the engine that keeps Chrome working, which is a big enough task in and of itself. Once again, it's not, uh, it, it is, it is one of the reasons why it's the standard by which any web developer tests their uh, test, their code isn't just because they are overwhelmingly the number one browser. It's because they support the most stuff and they support it better than pretty much anybody else. So if there's a new technology that's going to transform the web, they've probably got it. As long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't impact their web business, they're going to support it. Uh, So maybe they just see themselves as, Hey, look, we're here to give you the engines. We're here to give you the brake system, the steering system, this, the, 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 the interior of the car, the the, the exterior body panels, we're going to leave that for uh, uh, as an opportunity for plug-in developers. So if anybody has an idea for enhancing the user interface or innovating with the user experience, making things easier for the user, great idea. Get right on that. Give us a plug-in for it. Um, the latest version of Chrome, actually, that came out this week in the beta channel, it supports something brand new called the Chrome Side Panel API. And this uh, API it's available to plug-in developers, and it enables, quote, persistent experiences that complement the user's browsing journey. So, yeah, they could create – a developer of a plug can create a brand-new user experience, a brand-new UI that uh, lives in the side panel and is persistent across uh, across many, many web pages. So, theoretically, I suppose that much of what I like about Arc could be implemented just as a plug-in. And for all I know, Arc themselves could create uh, an Arc plugin. I can, fingers crossed, here's hoping. But I keep coming back to the fact that Google, they're a trillion dollar company. So like maybe they've got more resources than anyone else who considers whipping (laughs) that kind of thing up on their own. And if they did, if Google did, I I wouldn't have to worry about a company other than Google watching everything that I do inside of Chrome. Okay, we're going to take another break and then we're going to talk a little bit about folding things. Well, Google has a lot more to say about the Pixel Fold. They've been really banging the drum this week about it. There's a brand new episode of the Made by Google podcast. That's the official uh, Google podcast about how they make the things that they make. Uh, the new episode features Ivy Ross, who's the vice president and head of design for all hardware products at Google. Isabel Olson, who's vice president for industrial design across all Google hardware. And Cla- and Claude Zellweger, director of design for phones. Uh, part of the team that came up with the camera bar, by the way. Interestingly, they all have links to VR slash AR. So if this were Apple, you'd think, oh, well, isn't this cute? Uh, Ross and Olson, they designed the, the industrial design for Google Glass, including the aborted Google Glass 2. Uh, and Zellweger came into Google as a VR guy, and he helped design Daydream. Just thought interesting, interesting t- tidbit. Uh, but they were all there, too, uh, on the podcast to talk about all the new hardware from Google I.O., Um, I don't, I'm not really terribly interested in the Pixel 7a. Good on them. Nice. I'm not really interested in the tablet. Eh, I mean, it's just – it's a tablet. Uh, but I've, I'm kind of – I've been uh, – uh, the, uh, the, the Pixel Fold has been getting a lot of my attention recently. Um, we didn't know if a foldable fo- phone from Google was coming or going for the past few years. Like there had been – consistent evidence of devices being deep, deep, deep into production and then canceled, which led to the possible conclusion that, hey, maybe Google, they thought that they were going to get into it. They thought that foldables were, were going to be a big, big part of the market. And now that they've seen that uh, the uh, the Samsung Fold is eh, kind of not really getting any traction, they decided, yeah, let's not even bother with it. Um, but uh, they in the official Google podcast here, They had a conversation, they were in the conversation. They said that, yeah, they did have a couple of false starts with a foldable pixel before they landed on uh, the phone that Google actually announced a couple of weeks ago. And of course they talked about, oh, we see this is, I'm proud of us for having, for saying, hey, this has to be better than, as good as, or better than anything else that's on the market, i.e. Samsung. And this just ain't it. So, hey, we're going to have the discipline to say no and delay this another year and (laughs) basically erase everything and start all over again. Go, go etch a sketch. On that basis, though, I'd love to hear the story about the Pixel Watch because it had a similar sort of news pedigree. Like, it seemed like it was ready to go a year before they actually shipped it, like in in 2022. They had all the renders, all the information, like, January or February in 2021. Um, and when they did release it, it ultimately looked exactly like the renders that leaked and all the information from the renders that uh, from uh, that, that leaked earlier. So I wonder what the, what the holdup was, this was 2021 20. So maybe it was, how can we manufacture them in quantity or maybe they actually had some engineering problems that weren't once they, once you lock in, here's what the physical design, here's the, what the, uh, Uh, with what the industrial design is going to be. Now you have to make all the electronics fit inside there. And once that's locked down, okay, we have to fix these problems. We can't just simply add an extra hump to the extra side of this watch. How much would you, how much would you pay for a watch called the pixel hump? (laughs) This is why, this is why I'm not paid to name things. I'm fascinated by that idea. I think that the market would be fascinated about why Google decided to name something, the hump uh anyway uh so uh, they also were talking about how they had to get the size of the pixel fold fold right because they wanted super super thinness uh as a signature design of the thing so uh and by the way that was their third attempt not their second so there's also but this is like i said about a a full court press we're trying to get the word out about how oh this is not just we didn't just throw this on the market we're we're design uh, design weirdos I'm saying the word weirdo and weirdo in the very, very best sense of the word. I mean, that sincerely weirdos are important. I've always, I've always thought that if you want to understand a society, uh, don't talk to the people who are giving the tours, like you you want to meet, I, uh, anytime that I'm worried about what's happening in, uh, Iran or Turkey or Russia or China, that's why I love like YouTube. That's why I love social media. It'll show you the weirdos, the people who are still, <laughs> who, who decided the, the, the people who are, who are feeding, feeding pigeons in the park with a puppet that looks exactly like them feeding pigeons in the park. Give me the weirdos. And so okay. We're going to be okay. I can relate to the people of this culture as different as they seem to be. They still have their, they, they have not beaten all of their weirdos, the the the, the, the spirit out of all the, their weirdos. Weirdos can flourish. there. good for them uh so, so again i, I mean that is i mean weirdo as a good as a good thing um uh, but there's a also in addition to the podcast there's also a, a, a brand new post in the official google blog all about how they designed the hinge for the pixel fold same trio uh, and it had a tidbit that made me really i'm sorry because uh, some of the same people but also some uh individual engineers and it had a tidbit about it that made me really really happy um i'm going to quote the blog post here again this is the in-house blog. So this is promotional by nature. So of course, uh, one of the first design aspects the team focused on to achieve this was the torque or force needed to open and close pixel fold. They needed it to be both really smooth and consistently reliable. The torque they eventually landed on creates what sang the engineer they're talking to, describes as a satisfying vacuum sensation. When you fold the phone open and shut that folding action, even makes a specific sound. "Quote: You get this satisfying clap when it shuts, and we really liked it." George uh, Sangsu said. Uh, another quote from George: uh, "We wanted it to firmly close, so we needed to balance the magnets to find that happy place." And last quote for, from the uh, from the blog post: When thinking of durability needs, they also factored in people like himself who repeatedly click their pens in meetings. That got my attention and got me a, got a smile out of me because yes, I can definitely see myself forgetting that this one thousand eight hundred dollar phone isn't a ten dollar fidget toy. I would be opening and closing it <laughs> occasionally just for the sensation of how good it feels like to open and close it and to hear that click. Uh, Like it's been like oh, good God, like 17 years since I traded my, my windows phone flip phone for the first iPhone, but I still miss that satisfying, like that snap when I closed it up and the way the hinge moved. Like I, I, that was well before fidget toys became like an actual product category, but retroactively, Oh, that was such a great fidget toy. Um, but it pleased me uh, most of all because This is, uh, this is an $1,800 phone. Like absolutely everything about it should feel premium. Like I I talk about uh, earlier, I talked about not touching third rails, not stepping on rakes. A third rail is just an inherent danger of the thing, whatever it is you're doing. Okay. It's not a danger of your creation. It's just something that, boy, it's easy. It's easy to make that mistake. That's the, that's the, the, the hazard. So don't, don't kill yourself over that. Stepping on a rake is my God, you saw it right there. All you had to do was not step on it and you would not get thwacked in the middle of the head with a big, big, like piece of heavy white ash. But no, you decided that not stepping on the rake was not as satisfying as jumping on the rake. And now you're splayed on the ground like that with a big dent in your forehead and no really good excuse as to why you're now concussed. Uh, And that and stepping on a rake with this phone would have been oh my god, it feels so cheap, it feels so chintzy, it feels like this thing. And you, you, I I close it, and the two halves aren't really staying together, there's still some sort of like wobble in this hinge. You have to get it right, everything should feel premium, especially the tactile feel when you open and close it, because that's something that's going to happen dozens of times every day. And if the opening and closing this thing, makes it feel like you're opening, closing the lid of a takeout container. Like that's a lot of times per day to be thinking that I'm a dope who should not be making big ticket purchases without adult supervision. $1,800. But, but overall the, the pixel fold, it interests me in a way that the Samsung fold never did over the past three years. And no, I'm not talking about being interested in actually buying one. Oh God. No, I I still can't wrap my head around the idea of a phone that costs as much as a premium or at the very least a high-end mid-range laptop. I sure can't wrap my wallet around it. Like, I remind you, I am a freelance journalist in a rapidly collapsing market. And with the advent of generative AI, like large language models, my financial planning for the future now includes like hanging on to any worn out leather shoes if it looks like the leather might be edible during a future crisis. But yeah, I'm, I might try to get a hold of a loaner pixel fold and then daily drive it for a while. I I try not, especially when it's a big ticket item, I try not to get an editorial loaner unless I have specific intentions to like write about it or talk about it. Uh, and with the Samsung, it's like, uh, what am I going to say that I couldn't, I don't already know just from fooling around with it a little bit. Um but this is different i think that it's good enough to for me to daily drive it for a while like i like that it seems like a normal phone when it's not a tablet the samsung it's just too thick and it's a weird elongated shape that's uh, i just have no affection for it you know I, and i admit that I, I haven't actually held a pixel fold yet but the Google Industrial Design Team religiously, in all these these PR things they keep doing, they religiously keep citing things like passports and Moleskine notebooks as their inspiration for the form factor. And that, and plus what I've seen in the pictures and the measurements, that seems like the right answer to me. Like That seems like the, a good size for it. I So I'm, I'm encouraged. But that said, I really wish the industry weren't so gung-ho and fixated on folding displays that... They've become blinded to the idea of, I don't know, something that's a lot simpler, like uh, just two conventional displays separated by a hinge and a slight gap. This technology has been available to us since the advent of the display and the advent of the hinge, the hinge having preceded the display by quite a number of decades. And yet, we seem to have skipped right over that. We don't. There, there are a couple of experiments with it. Microsoft came out with uh, before their their Pixel Duo, uh, excuse me, their uh, uh, before their Surface Duo. Uh, uh, they experimented with uh, with a uh, device called Courier that also was well into development before it got canceled, and looked fascinating. It looked like something that really might have moved the needle. Something that went beyond simply—you used to have just uh, ten square inches or thirty, whatever, thirty square inches of screen. Now you have sixty square inches of dis- of display. Hey, it went beyond that and became a new paradigm. Just like the mouse b- was much more than a replacement for the arrow keys when the Macintosh was uh, was uh, was released. Okay, it's an entirely entirely new idea, entirely new way of thinking about this mobile de- mobile device. And I'm just sorry that they didn't... That no one seems to be, be going on about it. Um, it's simpler. It's, it seems like it would be a lot cheaper. Definitely would be a lot more durable. And to me, it really is just as interesting. Like, yes, unfolding a phone into a single uninterrupted display, like with the Pixel Fold, that, that's one ideal. But two displays, two separate displays, separated by a gap and a hinge, that would just deliver a bunch of bunch of similar advantages like the idea of a computer with the form factor of a book it's familiar and it's powerful in a way that a single folding display isn't like the same way that the round dial of the pixel watch and the samsung galaxy watch is compelling in a way that the square apple watch isn't this is something from reality that we're imposing a digital articulation onto okay um it's a form factor that we're programmed to respond to, you know, a book. And it lends itself very naturally to many different workflows. Like you have uh, uh, one app spread across two screens, you know, where you have like you're, you're going through your emails. The left screen is a list of your emails. Tap on one of them and it opens on a uh, full display of uh, on the right screen of the actual message. Uh, or like you're working with two apps at the same time. You've got like, uh, a, I, I could easily see myself. I've got a web browser on the left-hand screen with uh, a report or a PDF or something or some information that I need to read. Then on the right, I've got my notes app open so I can record like the good stuff, the stuff that I actually slog through those 80 pages in order to get on and on and on. And, and of course it's absolutely what I want in a book reader in and in a version of the Kindle app. Finally, It just, I like the idea that delivers the same opportunities for a a physically transformative form factor as like an actual folding display. And it's the idea of a transformative form factor that I've been kind of hungry to see manufacturers really play with. The idea of a transforming piece of hardware, that it's it's not only a laptop. OK, a, a, a desktop that's not only a desktop, a phone that's not only a phone, that when it, when it's more uh, that the, the, this uh, piece of technology that you paid a lot of money for, when it can serve – when you're in a situation where it serves you best that it be like a laptop, it's a laptop. When you're in a situation that serves you best to have something that's more like a tablet, it's a tablet. When you have – when you're in a situation where uh, an easel uh, is going to serve you best it can become an easel. This is, uh, this is one of the reasons why I still get so much use out of, uh, uh out of my Chromebook that it has that 180 degree hinge uh, uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's diner deployment <laughs> is the best example where I, I order and I've got it like spread out like a laptop and I'm just doing work or checking email. And then my order arrives and now I just want to like read the comics. or I want to like watch a movie. So I'd not fold it into an easel configuration. So it's not taking up so that my, uh, the space right in front of me is taken up as it should be by pancakes and bacon. And it's got this, and it's just uh, presenting what it wants to be. And the idea of having a vertical screen for display and a flat screen on the surface of your desk or the table, that's just for user interface, like controllers and stuff like that. That is also really, really compelling. And I really want to see, what people could do with that and it's also like i like i suggested it's a way to get the prices of these things down to something that maybe wouldn't cause me to feel my father's disapproval from beyond the grave if i were to buy one okay like these folding displays from samsung they're super expensive just as a component and you know phones are phones mobile devices are mobile devices if you bust it or you scratch it or you crack it replacing them is an all or nothing proposition. And once again, it's a hugely expensive component. Whereas if you have two displays, they're cheap to begin with. And replacing one is not that difficult. Um, I mean, I've even wondered what it could be like if like um, Samsung and Apple both have small tablets like like the iPad mini. Would these companies have to actually create something specific like the like the Microsoft courier right here is here are two screens that are physically built together with a hinge between how about if you could just optionally buy a case that you could that uh, like a book a book case <laughs> i've named the product for you a book case that you put you buy if you own two of these uh, mini tablets you you sock one in the left side of this case the other the right side the, the other the right hand side of this case and they see they sense each other's proximity if they see that hey look we're together in one of these certified cases we are now going to act like a book device we're now going to act like an easel device you know we're we're going to be connected together and have all these transformative experiences that are supported by android and that would be supported by apple if they were more on the ball about the about touch computing than than they seem to be the only experiment we've seen actually with this kind of for real like folding machine two screens separated by a hinge is the Microsoft Surface Duo. And yes, it's technically an Android phone, but it's a really weird dialect of the mother tongue. Also, it's reliant on Microsoft keeping it updated and yeah, they're not doing that. <laughs> it was a it was huge news when Android 12L finally came to uh, uh, to the Duo and that was like after the release of Android 13. So they're not, they're not really showing a whole lot of enthusiasm for it. Um, and okay, I will admit that, okay, Microsoft wants $1,500 for the Surface Duo two o Duo 2, Duo 2 uh, for the current model. Okay, that's not exactly cheap. I would be hoping for 1,200 bucks, 1,000 bucks, like twice twice the cost of a mid-range Android phone I would be hoping for. So twice $500 or $600. And so, yeah, that's more than that. But it's still a lot less expensive than $1,800 for uh, the Pixel or the Samsung. And like I said, replacing a screen when it breaks is going to be much, much cheaper than on a foldable. But here's, but here's a piece of news that got my attention real quick, and here's why I'm talking about it this week. Uh, an ex-Microsoft engineer, is trying to turn the Surface Duo into something close to what you might call a a Pixel Duo. He's developing a custom ROM as well as a port of stock Android for the Surface Duo. Uh, He announced the project uh, this week or last week uh, with a tweet and a video that boldly, maybe or maybe just uh, demonstrating hubris, declared a Pixel experience. He actually said a Pixel experience on the Duo. Uh, Nothing less than that. Um, now the port it's in its early stages, but it supports the duo's unique set of foldable postures. You know, again, is it is it closed? Is it open? Is it folded all the way back? Is it you know, open like a book? Is it flat on the display? And it's based on Android 13, which already would put it well ahead of the 12 uh, Android 12L that Microsoft uh, finally shipped. And it also the way this, the way this constructed between this uh, custom ROM. Uh, you could flash and, uh, and the custom version of Android, it means that updating it to 14 and 15 and beyond would not be terribly difficult. Uh, <laughs> certainly not as difficult as browbeating a micro senior Microsoft executive into investing human power into supporting something that they seem to have already forgotten exists. I mean, this put that all together. This is something that I want. Like it's really disappointing it happens time and time again. Like when an industry starts off creating a brand new product category and there's a, a flurry of initial experimentation and innovation when they throw out, this is something brand new. We don't have to be belabor. We don't have to be encumbered by preconceptions and pre-existing designs. We can create something brand new. Like we saw it with digital cameras when they first came out and you know, and, Every film camera, 35 millimeter camera looks exactly the same because at in the end you've got a roll of film that has to move from the left side to the right side behind a lens that is constrained by optics. So you know that that defines what the shape of it's going to be. But once you say, hey, we can put the image sensor, anywhere so we can have something that's like a comfort that's a, a video camera that's like a pistol grip very very comfortable to hold we can have like the lens part of it rotate from the body so that we can angle uh, angle the lens up or down hold it above your head we can do anything you want and yay there were all these really bizarre designs for cameras and then they settled into let's just make them look almost exactly like every 35 millimeter camera that all of these things replaced that's disappointing. That seems like a a really, really bad missed opportunity. And yeah, arguably like with the laptop, everything looks like every laptop looks the same. You got a, a screen, you got a hinge, you got a keyboard and underneath that, you got a trackpad. And maybe it's hard to improve upon that. Maybe that is a very, very practical solution, but are we sure with cameras and with phones, are we sure that we we found this the state of perfection all those years ago? And there's no way we can possibly improve this. I, I don't think there are enough weirdos who are really, really trying to figure that out. And maybe <laughs> that maybe the, the, the other problem is that, like, not only do you need weirdos who are coming up with brand new ideas like, Hey, what if instead of a keyboard, we had another display that was a touch display. So it could be a a full size keyboard for typing if we wanted to, but it also could be an input device. You, You also need to have a number of weirdos, actually exponentially larger number of weirdos who are willing to pay money for such a thing. I might be the only weirdo that's like that. And I just established that I'm willing to eat shoes for nutrition in the next coming year or two. So I might not have the, the, the buying power to actually, you know, compel them to put this into manufacturing. So like at $1500 like the Surface Duo still a hard no for me even if this project actually ships and it's really really good. But if this new project works on any of those like fire sale duos that can be had for as little as 500 bucks. Let's say let's say I'm intrigued. You know, I I might risk $500 on something like that, particularly if it works. <laughs> Especially if I can borrow one. <laughs> for a few weeks and make sure that it's not something totally totally foolish well i think that's going to do it for this episode flow is going to be back in a couple of weeks uh, in the meantime you can check out what she's up to on her instagram where she's oh that flow i'm anatko i-h-n-a-t-k-o on twitter and instagram you can go to boston public radio at wgbhnews.org to see the tech segments that i do every week or two uh, on npr for boston uh also, uh, occasionally we do things in the studio that wind up on YouTube. We go to the WGBH News channel on YouTube. And once again, as always, you can help support our show and everything on the Relay.fm network by becoming a member. Head on over to Relay.fm material to sign up and gain access to special members-only episodes produced by all of Relay's contributors, including us. This week's episode, I want to talk about editing photos on my uh, on my phone Uh, because, yeah, Google Photos has become a lot better. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Well, for all of you, thank you so much for listening this time. I hope you're going to be listening again next week. Until then, everybody have a happy, safe, and healthy seven days. Bye-bye.